All right, this is uh, October 23rd, and our discussion time will be from uh, the Epistle to the Hebrews, Lesson 2, Homework. Let's begin with prayer. Our Father, our King, we thank you for the time that we can spend together studying. We thank you for opportunities not only to uh, open your word and learn from it, Father, but also to fellowship and to listen to how the Spirit speaks uh, through and to one another as well. Father, we pray that you might open our ears this evening, that we might uh, uh, freshly recount the work that we have done in studying. We pray that you might teach us, uh, because it is uh, you uh, to whom we come to hear and to learn, we pray in Yeshua's name. Amen. Let's do the uh, blessing before the Torah reading, please. Barakuta Donai Hambora, Baruka Donai Hambora, Melam Baid, Barukata Adonai, Elohini Meleka Olam, Asher Bakaban Mikoha Amin, Venatan Lanuet Torato, Barukata Adonai, Notain Hatora Amen. Bless Adonai who is blessed. Blessed is Adonai who is blessed forever. Blessed art thou Adonai our God, King of the universe, who chose us from all the peoples and gave to us his Torah. Blessed art thou Adonai, giver of the Torah. Amen. Alright, lesson two. Uh, Just before we get started though, let me uh, correct a uh, mistake in in your workbooks. Um, when we get to part two, print part two, I'll give you a corrected page for this. But it's in, uh, in the daily service at the bottom of page uh, uh, 27 in your appendix. The bottom of page 27. I said there at the bottom it says the Tamid sacrifices. Uh, there's two references to a goat. That is a lamb. Okay. Everybody got that? I'll give you the corrected page when we move on to part two as well. Or actually, not part two. The continuation of part one. (laughs) The last half of this book. Therefore, we must give more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. For if the words spoken through angels proved steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward... How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him? That's Hebrews 2, 1 through 3, uh, which is one of the places that we, hopefully as you are marking uh, phrases or words, you got how much more or how much more or a a, a comparison uh, phrase. Did you find a comparison phrase in that? Good. Previously, we looked at, what, uh, at the common misinterpretation of Hebrews, not to, be, uh, not to be pejorative or speak badly of those who have, who have seen it this way, but in the process of seeing it maybe incorrectly, uh, that is, uh, that, they were, that the book was written to keep people from relapsing into Judaism as if it's a disease, um, there's, there's big problems with it. Uh, one problem, I mean, there's a lot of problems with it. Uh, number one, we've been looking at Acts, and it's like, it's pretty plain that that's not true. Uh, but also there's another problem, and, and that is the very, the very book itself of Hebrews, uh, if it is in fact the idea that they should leave or not go back to Judaism, then why doesn't he just say that? Why doesn't he even get close to say that? 
He never tells them to leave the temple system that he's speaking of in the present tense. Okay? Uh, one would think that if the pres- if this temple system was functioning as it appears to be when this book was written, then that he would have said, listen, you know, get over this, move out. You, know. you, don't, need to go you don't need to go there anymore. Not just, not just Yeshua is better. This is like, it's not even not necessary. It's wrong. The vast majority of believers in the world believe that if the temple were in existence today, it would be wrong for believers to participate. In fact, even to hear me say that I don't believe that, people would consider to be heretical and that it isn't somehow dismissing the ultimate sacrifice of Yeshua. Uh, not, to be, not, not, to, not to be callous, but one thing is clear. As we read the book of Acts, they had not left it. How that applies to us, we don't have to worry about today because we don't have a temple. If we had a temple, we would have to worry about it. It would be a question we would have to resolve. One of the reasons we're doing this study is to help us understand what it really means. What the temple system really means. How it applies to us. Who wrote this book? The epistle. I mean, I I wrote the workbook. Who wrote the epistle to the Hebrews? (laughs) I saw this movie. This is a review. A person uh, who who uh, didn't write it. Well, it, it wasn't Timothy. That's about all you can say, really. I mean, but we know that it's probably someone in the Pauline circle, right? Because he is he is he is speaking uh, about Timothy. He's speaking from where is he writing this book? Italy. Italy. Uh, the time frame. What's the time frame that this book was being written? Some, probably somewhere before that, but no later, no earlier than 62, because Paul's not being mentioned. If even if it wasn't, even if it wasn't Paul writing, Paul is not mentioned. But more more importantly, the the imprisonment of Timothy is mentioned in chapter 13, and that Timothy was being released from prison. We have no record in the book of Acts of Timothy being ever imprisoned. Uh, we would we suspect that this is an imprisonment that follows Second Timothy, uh, where Paul tells Timothy to come to Rome where Paul is imprisoned, comes to Rome and bringing him various things, uh, cloak and uh, scrolls and books. Um, our, our, our detective work would indicate then that it's very probable that Timothy followed through and in fact was arrested in Rome. That's, that would be what we would suppose. And that this would follow that, which would indicate he was, it, was, it would be after Paul's imprisonment that he would be released, which would be the year 62 would be the earliest. Okay? And, uh, I think concluded that it probably wasn't Paul because the personal pronoun is not used nearly. He speaks in the he speaks in he speaks in the plural we. And the Greek was much better than Paul. The, the Greek is the best Greek that is found in the Apostolic Scriptures. Yeah. Uh, if it is Paul that is writing this book, it is most likely uh, Paul being being uh, dict- or Paul dictating possibly. As he was wont to do, but this would have been uh, um, not only dictating, but then, uh, as it were, cleaned up. Um, uh, I have no difficulty with the inspired, uh, the inspired principle, even if it is a cleaned up dictation of Paul. Uh, The Holy Spirit is certainly 
um, powerful enough to make sure that the work that he has devoted is superintended, and that's what that's what I believe. So, uh, okay. So Paul Paul may probably did not write the book. Um, I, I postulated one theory, possi- possibly Luke, uh, since he is uh, since he has very well well defined Greek. We see in in the book of Luke and the book of Acts, and there seems to be some uh, some similar themes that we're going to look at today. Um, uh, specifically, there was a theme that he re- mentioned right at the begin- beginning of Luke, and that is he was not an eyewitness. And that's exactly what he makes. What, whoever wrote the book of Hebrews makes the point as well. I was not a witness. I'm a second hand. I heard. I heard from those who were witnesses. Okay. Uh, who received the book? Pardon me. People not in Italy. That was a very good, very good. Uh, as opposed to uh, the book of uh, James, Yaakov, who was written to the twelve tribes scattered throughout the world, uh, we see that this book was not written to twelve tribes, but simply to Hebrews. Uh, the book is titled to the Hebrews, and we know that some early uh, manuscripts actually say to the Hebrews actually in the first line. So it's po- very possible that that the title. Is it's very possible is as well inspired. Regardless, the people that are receiving this book, based on the themes that are used, are steeped, steeped in the temple system. They know it inside and out. Okay. Any any, any other clues? Uh, they have been persecuted. They have been persecuted. Mm-hmm. I wrote it down that the old land of Israel. This is the based on what they're called. Correct, correct. We looked at Acts chapter 6 and concluded, that, or uh, I believe, yes, Acts chapter 6 and concluded that since the phrase the Hebrews is used there to identify those who were Judean and spoke Hebrew as opposed to Hellenist, those who spoke Greek, that it was actually a phrase that is used to describe a group of people who are believers who live in the land of Israel, probably Judea, Jerusalem area. Um, we also got that, that Paul uses the same phrase to describe himself. A Hebrew of Hebrews. Okay? Why not Jew? Jew is, Jew is a completely, uh, I mean, it's a completely New Testament uh, apostolic scripture. The word Jew is used often. Why not Jew? What's different between Jew and Hebrew? One might be able to say, and I think that it actually Acts indicates that there, there is a difference. There are Greek-speaking Jews and there are Hebrew-speaking Jews. And never the twain shall meet. We'll see today. Uh, we look at those. Why was it written? Why was the book written? What was its purpose? Chapter 13, uh, chapter 13 verse 22 tells us that it was written primarily as a letter of exhortation. It is also written as a letter of warning. But remember, exhortation is the reason. To exhort is quite different from... A a difference between exhortation would be 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians is a slap-you-upside-the-head warning. 2 Corinthians, a correction. 2 Corinthians is an exhortation. Keep pressing on the way that you've... You've obviously responded to me, Paul wrote. Let's keep pressing on in that direction. Okay? This book, Hebrews, in many ways reminds me somewhat of 1 John. They're very similar. There is a very, very big danger to not pressing on, but the writer seems to believe that they will. The writer is confident of them pressing on, actually. We're going to see in chapter 6, which we actually are not going to get to in order. We're not taking things in order, and the reason why is because we have to settle things before we take them 
exegetically, and we really can't take them exegetically because we don't have the cultural background, so we have to take them almost out of order. Um, so we'll get actually get to chapter six after we go through chapter nine and ten. Um, yes, but it was an encouragement. It was a warning. It is a, there is some warning in it. Just we read that first warning. The the light to the heavy is the, the device that's being used. We talked about the kalva komra. It is about the world to come. Chapter 2, verse 5 says, For he did not, speaking, uh, speaking of Messiah, for he did not subject the world to come, he did not subject the world to come, of which we speak to angels. It is the topic that he is speaking of in chapter 1 and 2, and we can apply to the rest as well, is the world to come. What is the world to come? Olam Haba, what is the world to come? Whatever it is, it's not now. Right? Well, or, or it's not, it can't be defined as this present age, which is what we also see a phrase used. And actually, it's a different, it's a different, it's, it's not, it's not Olam Hazay in the, in, I mean, the Greek would not be anything close to Olam Hazay. That's the Hebrew. But that's the way that a Hebraic reckoning would be. Olam Hazay compared to Olam Haba, the world to come. Okay? And that's what we see. Olam Hazay illustrates Olam Haba. As we go through this book, this is going to be a constant going back to this visual metaphor. This present world illustrates the world to come. Let's look at our acts, our historical and cultural context. You have your out, you have your, uh, your from your appendix, your cultural context. Let's uh, let's go through these. We'll try and read as much as we can as well. As much as we have time for, we'll try and read as well. We looked up the first part. We went all the way through chapter. Chapter 2, right? We finished chapter 2 in Lesson 1. What were just some real quick ones out of the first two chapters from, from uh, some Hebraic contexts, some cultural slash religious things uh, that jumped out at you in chapters 1 and 2? Just a reminder what we did uh, two weeks ago. Baptism. Okay, baptism. We had immersion. Uh, we think of immersion, or we think of baptism, as a as a as a uh, uh, quote New Testament thing. And in fact, we we discover that it isn't. Um, it is, but it predates it. Right? It's a thoroughly Jewish thing. Uh, we were talking about uh, um, the uh, the high holy days and Passover in Jerusalem uh, in modern times. Um, people would be more likely to go to um, Get a mikvah before, before the, uh, before a Passover, before Sukkot or whatever else, and they would even be going to synagogue. It's far more important to get a mikvah, okay, which is immersion, okay. Um, we saw in chapter two, verse sixteen, the third hour. They went, they went at the third hour, right? That would be a prayer time, okay. They, they were all gathered together at the third hour, right? What? Third hour. Um, they were in the temple during Sukkot, yes, or excuse me, during Shavuot, uh, Pentecost. Chapter three. Let's go to chapter three. Start there. What's the first? Uh, what's the first uh, context that you saw up there? 
actually, how are you? Put up there. What's the first context that you have? Hebraic context in chapter chapter three that you saw, or anything else that's not on the screen? Yeah. Say what? We uh, we put right hand in, in chapter three and verse seven. Uh, wow. Uh, why is that? Why is that? Why is that a cultural issue? We know that people. Huh? Like they use their right hand for money, so. That's right, and well, I mean other things as well. Yeah. Well, right. yeah, it's the other things that we were. Uh, That's right. Absolutely. Absolutely. That in their culture, the right hand was the clean hand. Absolutely. It's also weapon hand. Weapon There's hand many hand different hand. things. Yeah. Yeah. Which is where shaking comes from, right? It's that whole cultural thing comes from. Look, I'm unarmed. Yeah. That's right. The right hand. That's right. Exactly right. This is my dirty hand. So what did he? What, so what did he do? He took him by the right hand and picked him up and uh, lifted him up. That's very yeah. yeah. Well, certainly it's 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 it, it's a Semitic thing at least. And why write it? Right. Why put it down for you? Why put it down? You pick him up in the right. Oh, it's like an important thing. Yeah, it's yeah. like yeah. Um, the ninth hour. They going up from Minka prayers. You you uh, you you looked in the, in your appendix. Looked at the uh, at the uh, prayer service and uh, the ninth hour is a big deal. They were in the temple daily. I was astonished this week as we went through this at how much they were in the temple. In fact, there's hardly any part of it where they're not in the temple. They seem to be, I mean, thrown in prison and they get let out and where they back in the temple. It's well, now to be here's here's the way that's traditionally explained away, not not to be disparaging, but it's traditionally explained away. Where else, where else are you going to go to evangelize people? Okay. Although to be fair, we see that they're in the principle from that, and that they go to where people are most hungry and most interested. But what were they going to do? This is the most important thing. In this context, they were going to pray. They were going to pray. They were going to pray. They were also going to meet. It says that they meet. I think that shows up later that they meet that they met in the temple daily. Ah, exactly. Which is actually that's the place you'd go. Where else? Where else are you going to get eight thousand people to be able to fit? Yeah, there you go. Peter's message, and this is this is a, this is an astounding message. It really is. Peter's message in chapter three, um, verse nineteen, where he says, "This is he's speaking. He's he's basically he's teaching. This is in Solomon's portico. I'll show you a picture here in a second. Solomon's portico, which is inside. First of all, when they went when they went up and they found this lame man at the beautiful gate. That's the eastern gate. It's the, currently the gate that's sealed." They went through the eastern gate. It says, after the man's healed, he went with them into the temple. Immediately going inside to the left and to the right, inside the gate, along the inside wall, and then as, as you go through this gate, along the inside wall is a covered area called Solomon's Portico. That's what Solomon's Portico is. It's right inside that gate. So this is their gathering space. And we find that this is, in fact, what, they, what we continue to, where we continue to find them in Solomon's Portico. So they're in the temple proper. Okay, but they have not necessarily gone into uh, whereas a common worship area would be uh, um, maybe for going in and, and uh, offering sacrifices or whatever else. This is where this is kind of like their rest space, as it were. Okay, this is where you would often find Yeshua as well, speaking, talking. This is where people come to talk. 
they come to talk about the weighty things of, of the Lord. Um, but anyway, Peter's, Peter is speaking here in Solomon's portico. And he says, Repent therefore and be converted or be turned that your sins may be blotted out so that the times of refreshing may come for the presence of the Lord. This is, a, this is a, just following Shavuot. What, what's, is there anything in that message that strikes you as Hebraic? The whole Teshuvah. Right. And uh, we, I mean, that's, that's what we just went through in those in that's the right. days leading up yeah. to, that, to this piece. I mean, it's a cult, yeah. Mm-hmm. Is, is to repent and, and get right. Where, where we've missed it is, is to, to misunderstand the use of this word throughout the Gospels as well. Matthew chapter, uh, chapter 3, Matthew chapter 4, and then Matthew chapter uh, 10. We talk about the message that John uh, uh, the Immerser, John the Baptist, uses is in fact, repent for the kingdom of heaven is a hand. And then we immediately see exactly the same word described to Yeshua. It says, and he went about preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is a hand in chapter 4. And then as he sends his, men, his, uh, his, his disciples, his Hamidim out, um, to minister to uh, Israel at large, he sends them out with the same message, teaching them to repent. What is it to repent? Go to Malachi chapter 4. Actually chapter... Hold on. I'll give you the verse. It's, uh, yeah, it's chapter, uh, chapter 4, verse 4. It says, Remember the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded him in Horeb, that is Sinai, for all Israel, with the statutes and judgments. Behold, I send you Elijah before the prophet, before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he will turn, that is, that is from the same root, shuv, to re- repent. He will turn the hearts of the children and the ch- hearts of the children, the hearts of the fathers to the children, the hearts of the children to the father, lest I come and strike the earth with a kiss, with a curse. Excuse me. And that is the end. Well, that's a good one too. Strike it with a kiss. But this is strike it with a curse. That's the same thing. That, did I do that before? It's amazing. Yeah. That's amazing. Something sick there. Yeah. That's it, Janet. But that's the the Tanakh ends on that verse right. the Tanakh ends on that verse and then we turn over and we immediately discover in in, uh, in Matthew chapter 3 John who in Matthew chapter 11 Yeshua likens unto Elijah the prophet preaching what? turn repent what is the message of repentance? it is remember the law of Moses that is the message of repentance today in modern Judaism to say someone is a Baal Teshuvah is to say they are someone who has returned to the Torah to be observant. So it is, it is the very nature of repentance to obey God. That is the, its nature. It doesn't mean changing your mind about something. It means changing the way that you live. So, what's Peter's message? Repent. Return. Obviously, he's not saying repent of being a Jew. He's saying repent of being a bad Jew. Well, he is also including the mention of here. He's also strongly encouraging to hear Yeshua because later we see in chapter 4, exactly. two, that what upsets the Sadducees is that he's telling them that through Yeshua, 
he's preaching through Yeshua the resurrection from the dead. Okay, hold on. Let's hold on to that thought because I want to get to that in a second. He says, repent and be turned. In other words, it's kind of like it's a passive, it's kind of like an active passive thing. You repent so that you can be turned so that your sins may be blotted out. Where are they? They're in the temple. Does anybody need to worry about getting their sins forgiven? No, that's not what they're there for. That's not what they're there for. We're going to look into that in depth. But they're not there for to get their sins forgiven. So this is like a totally new thing. Wow. Actually, it's not a totally new thing because it's been discussed before. And the Tanakh, it talks about having your sins forgiven. In the New American Standard, you have returned, we have returned. Returned. And actually, yeah, it is, it's, it's, the, it's the same root, yeah. And, and it, it just occurs to me, if a Jew says to a Jew, return, Where did you go from? <laughs> if, if, if the Jew who is now saved is, has actually abrogated from Judaism, he cannot say to a Jew, another Jew, return. Because he's not... Exactly. Jew would be, would be Very good. So, Excellent. So obviously Peter's speaking from a position of... Being in, within the faith. Judaic piety. Yeah, exactly. Okay. okay. Uh, then he says, he says, we're waiting for this time of refreshing... And verse 20, that he may send Yeshua Messiah who is preached to you before, whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration. He's talking about this time of refreshing, time of restoration, a time yet future from where he was speaking, certainly. Uh, and, then for, and then he said, verse 22, for Moses said to the fathers, the Lord your God will raise up to you a prophet like me from your brethren, whom him you shall hear in all things whatever he says to do. So what's he do is he says, listen, this is what it means to return. You don't, you listen to Moses. And by the way, there's a prophet like unto Moses. And what did Moses tell you? Moses said, listen to him. Obey him. You must obey him is what it says. Earlier in the same sermon that Peter's giving you, he also, urges, he also reminds them that at first they had rejected Yeshua. He mentions the fact that they had... Um, he said, you denied the Holy One that just the desire to murderer to be granted to you. And so he's sort of, he's sort of flipping it around as part of the... He talks about their denial, but then he says, in, not, instead of not just not denying him, you must obey him. Okay? But it's very important you understand this. And if you read chapter 13 of Deuteronomy, chapter 18 of Deuteronomy, become a part of your your understanding of who Yeshua is and why he must be obeyed, you begin to understand that it's because you have returned to Moses that you must obey Yeshua. In other words, Yeshua is the he's the ultimate prophet. And you you will obey you will obey him because Moses told you to. Are you the prophet? Yeah. They said to John, are you the prophet? No, I'm not the prophet. But he's talking about one who is coming. And we know that he's speaking of Yeshua. We're going to see Stephen does the same thing. This, this connection between Yeshua, Messiah, and, and this prophet like unto Moses is something that the, that the apostolic writers will latch onto. We're going to see it in the Hebrews as well. They latch onto it. This is it. This is the man. This is the one that we were supposed to listen, watch for and obey. Okay. Uh, Acts four one through uh, twenty two and then verse thirty three. 
Uh, did anybody get anything else, anything else before we move on to chapter 4 from uh, okay, chapter 3? Like King James says, which I think confuses the issue, says we can't be therefore and be converted. Mine says, yeah. Yeah, it says, mine says converted. See, almost the same. It's like, okay, repent so you can be a Christian and no longer. Yeah, exactly. Exactly, yeah. Actually, the word converted is correct. It's not wrong. But it means different things to us today. Yeah, yeah culturally, yeah. Not religiously, yeah. Yeah. Uh, chapter 4 of. Uh, of uh, Acts. Anybody get anything from chapter 4 of Acts other than what I put up there? Yeah, we got, uh, we got one. Verse 4. But many of those who had heard the message believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. Now, as we read through this, we assumed that, uh, that uh, Peter and John had gone into the court of the men. Very good. And they would only count the men because that's who was there. Excellent. I think that's exactly correct. That is, and I, I've always heard the church saying, well, gee, it's a lot, it could have been a lot more than that because the men, the women, the children, I don't think there was any women more children around. I'll back up. Were in that court of the, the men. Oh, I forgot. I cut that off. I'll back up here in a second. It's kind of bleached out there, but the beautiful gate is on this, this end over here, and I have a picture of the modern beautiful gate that's been actually sealed up in the bottom in the inset right there. You can see it's sealed up. There's a, there's, Graves. No, no. This is the eastern gate. This is the eastern gate. Okay. The uh, the Holder gates. You can't see. It's kind of bleached out. The Holder gates are on this wall over here, and they come up through tunnels into the floor of the temple courtyard here. This is on the eastern edge. The Mount of Olives would be back behind us. This is the this is the entrance to the east. Ezekiel tells us this will be opened, and the presence of the Lord will go through this. But the eastern gate, and then inside this courtyard, this is a giant courtyard, the court of the Gentiles, you see this little barrier here? Uh, the court of the Gentiles is on the outside of this barrier all the way around. There's a small, uh, like, meter and a half high um, wall that we'll talk about later, but um, that separates the court of the Gentiles from this, an inner wall. And then this Shushan gate, uh, which has some direct decorations from from Persia because it was built uh, in, in honor of Persia who gave permission for them to come back and build the temple. And then inside this, this is the temple itself and then inside here is a, is a courtyard with, a, with the, uh, um, the uh, brazen altar and the labor. But this area right here is the court of the women. So when you said the court of the men, that would be outside of that. So Solomon's portico would be a perfect place. Does that make sense? Sorry, it's kind of bleached out, isn't it? Didn't look that bad on the computer. All right, anything else from chapter 4? Back up a little step more here. The priests and Sadducees are the ones that stopped. Priests, Sadducees, temple guards stopped Peter and John from preaching. Why did they stop them from preaching? Chapter 4, verse 3 says, And they laid hands on them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. Okay? Speaking of, and it makes the point. Priests, captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them. And then and, and after 
tells us five five thousand were believing men, and then and then in verse thirty three it says it tells us what it is that they actually had to guess what they were saying. That's no, not true. It's not verse thirty three. What is it? Verse two. The summary of what they had issues with is verse two. Verse two. Being greedy, that they talked to people and preached through Yeshua the resurrection from the dead. So yes, being great. Yeah, I'm sorry, it was right. Being greatly disturbed that they taught the people and preached in Yeshua the resurrection from the dead. Why is that significant? Why is that a cultural Hebraic thing? Why do I need to know that? There is a difference between Sadducees and Pharisees. That's right. Resurrection. Exactly. Exactly. What What was the difference? Who believed what? The Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. The Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. The Pharisees did, and the Essenes as well. Three major sects of Judaism. Two did not believe in, or two believed in the resurrection of the dead. One did not. Who are the priests, generally? Sadducees. Sadducees. Who is the head of the Sanhedrin? Actually, the ruling head of the Sanhedrin, not named head of the Sanhedrin, not president of the Sanhedrin. Who's the ruling head of the Sanhedrin? We see him again and again. The chief priest, the high priest. By the way, when it's plural, it just it's just basically admitting they're an error because there's only one high priest. Huh. Now, so this high priest is, is actually has a veto, as it were, in the Sanhedrin, in the ruling council. So he's the one running things, right? This is what we saw at Caiaphas, right? Even though the Sanhedrin did not rule on Yeshua, it was a group from the Sanhedrin that ruled on Yeshua. Mostly Sadducees. Remember, the Pharisees left. In the middle of the, in the, middle of the trial of Yeshua, who walks out? Pharisees. Why? Aren't the Pharisees the bad guys? The significant thing there too, I think, is the part A and B. Death of resurrection is a major part of what they have issues with. But they also have major issues with Yeshua because later they encourage them not to teach in his name. It's not just the resurrection. Because if you remember correctly, the Sadducees, A, had major issues with Yeshua at the time because he taught repentance, which is a major problem for them because they were, as a whole, tended to be more politically corrupt and such and were more concerned with um, accusing Rome that they weren't necessarily sure. following God. And so because of that, they had issues there. The other major problem they had, too, they had a major PR issue because they were the primary groups of the instigators in Yeshua's death. Hold on to that, because that's exactly what we're going to see when we get to Stephen. That's right. Verse 33, And with great power the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Yeshua, and great grace was upon them all. This is their message. It's a message of, of resurrection. Does anybody remember what the big, what the stumbling block on Mars Hill was for Paul in Acts chapter 17? It's the resurrection of the dead. Hey, it's not a problem just for Jews, Sadducees. It's a problem for Greeks as well. Everybody says, like, okay, resurrection of the dead. We're not talking this anymore. But what is it? But is it a problem for the Pharisees? No, it's not. In fact, he used it later on to his advantage. Exactly. That's it. Okay, let's look at chapter. Anything else from chapter four? Let's look at chapter five real quick. We're going to see the same thing coming back again and again. Actually, it's all the way through this book. Just like Joseph Sarmas, all the way through this book, resurrection for the dead is a, is a sticking point for half of Judaism. Not numerically half, but certainly the ruling half. Sadducees were in charge. The Pharisees were well accepted by the common people. I mean, I know you don't kind of get that from the Gospels, but it's actually true. The Pharisees were well accepted because they weren't nobility. They weren't the rich aristocrats. That's, that's where, you know, actually they, were, they shouldn't have been aristocrats anyway. They're Hasmonean. But that's where the Sadducees got their power. Is basically from the Hasmonean 
regimes that had reigned. Herod of who was an inheritor of it, uh, which were not were not were Levite. They weren't they weren't Judah. They had no right to the throne. We mentioned earlier the error of there being plural high priests. There's another reason. That's part of the problem. So they're politically motivated. So they politically motivated. They receive their power, including the power to be the high priest, just given by God through politics. Why? Why is it? In, does anybody have any problem understanding why Sadducees were busy about offering sacrifices? Why? What's the point? If there's no resurrection for the dead, what's all that all about? They would consider it to be the highest importance. In fact, it's so important that the first five books of Moses, the significant portion of the sacrifices, are the only ones they accept as actual scripture. Excellent. Excellent. Modern Karite Jews actually are descendants, theological descendants from Sadducees, and they hold to only the first five books as authoritative. Why? The reason why is because they said, who cares about the world to come? There's no such thing. All that matters is here and now. Well, then why bother with sacrifices? That's our error. We have always thought that the sacrificial system has something to do with the world to come. It doesn't. It never did. It's unrelated to the world to come. It's about now. It was about now. No one was thinking, hey, wow, I'm going to get my sins forgiven forever by going into the temple. Didn't think that way. Even Pharisees didn't think that way. And if they had that as an error, we see, as we see in Hebrews, the very proof that they could not be eternal is that they had to be continually offered. And that's exactly what we're going to see when we get into Hebrews. This is not new theology. This is a reminder of the theology they understood already. He's not telling them something new when he tells them that in Hebrews. He's telling them what they know. He's reminding them of what they know. Okay, let's look at Acts chapter 5, verses 12 through 42. Anybody get anything in the Acts there? Anything different there? You see, the primary question in the charges are having to do the resurrection of the dead. High priest in chapter 5 or 17 is a Sadducee. Again, verse 28 brings up the earlier point mentioned about their issues with Yeshua as a PR problem. He says that in verse 28, they said that did, we not, did not the straightly command you that you should not teach in this name? And behold, you still... Jerusalem with your doctrine is and to bring this man's blood upon us. Exactly. They're worried that this is a political thing. They're looking bad. Well, you know, number one, enough people go over to the pharisaical way of looking at things. That's all they're thinking about, right? There's a resurrection from the dead. Well, we're going to lose our power. We're the Sadducees. You know, we're going to have fewer people on the Sanhedrin. You know how that's all going to turn out. This is also turning into potential major problem because as we've already seen there are somewhere in the range of 7,000 men that have joined this new set. 8,000, yeah. Somewhere in that range. Jerusalem is not a multi-million person city at this point so that's a significant portion of religious Jews. If that many religious Jews are suddenly believing... In a matter of weeks. In a matter of weeks they're suddenly believing in Yeshua whom they killed then if those Jews were to turn on them they would lose a lot of their power. And that's what I was going to bring up. They're concerned the day before about taking these guys in this one. Yeah. They're concerned because uh, they're afraid that the people are going to stone them if they do something here. Mm-hmm. You know, pull them aside and say, uh, can you step in here for just a few minutes? <laughs> can you imagine if word got out, these Sadducees were primarily responsible for having the Messiah killed? Yeah. You blew it. That's it. You're out of here. Take him out. Yeah. Well, look at verse 42. Speaking of believers. 
and daily in the temple in every house they did not cease teaching and preaching Yeshua as Messiah what's the word daily mean to you? Tamid that's right exactly there's a loaded word you mention Tamid and you immediately go oh the continual sacrifice what is it? in other words this was this. where was their house of worship? the temple where would they go when they wanted to get together? Now, it says they did, they did meet together in each other's house as well. Well, obviously, 8,000 of them did all go meet in a house somewhere. What were they meeting in houses for? Well, we, as we read in this, in this book, you know, chapter 3, we see that they had all things in common. These are people from outside of Judea, basically there for Shavuot. After they basically come to faith in Messiah, what are you going to do now? Are you going to go back to Crete? No, hang out here, man. Who knows? Messiah may be coming back next week. Right? Not only that, you go back to Crete, your little village there, you may never see another person that believes. Man, this is great. Let's all stick together. That's exactly the way it was. They had to have everything in common. They're all strangers and visitors in this city. They're pilgrims. They stuck around for more than three days. Or two days of Shavuot. In... Was it verse 42 here? 542? No. Oh, Gamaliel, verse uh, 34. Then one of the council, this is from the Sanhedrin, stood up. A Pharisee named Gamaliel. Or so your Bible says Gamaliel. Gamaliel. Uh, Gamaliel. Uh, the reason it does is he's not a camel. Gamal is camel. His, his, word, his name has nothing to do with camel. So the Hebrew is Gamaliel, not Gamaliel. Uh, Gamaliel, a teacher of the Torah, held in respect by all the people, and commanded them to put their apostles outside for a little while. Who is his? Who is this man's student? We're going to meet here shortly. Saul, also known as Paul, Shaul is this man's student, which is going to be a very significant thing, because Gamaliel, or uh, 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 I see, I'm doing it too, Gamaliel is actually a very well-known rabbi. Not just in our scriptures here. He's a very well-known rabbi in Judaism. The Talmud mentions this man. He's actually a very wise and gracious man. There's that word. Gracious man. Especially to Gentiles. He was also wise in that he actually had his yeshiva students study classically, classically Greek and Roman. So that they were conversant in Greek and Latin, could write in Greek and Latin, and studied the classics. What's important to know, because our Rabbi Shaul is going to be a classically trained Hebraic Torah teacher. He's going to be a man for all seasons, stealing it away from Martin Luther. He's also well-read, as we see later on. Exactly. At the beginning, we see that at the beginning, this doesn't hold, but at the beginning, this fight that's going on in these first few chapters of Acts between believers and the high priest is an inter-Judaism squabble. It's a political thing. You asked in Homer what what were the believers called, Um, and it's intriguing that if you look at it, other people call them this way, Paul calls them, but they themselves pretty much only refer to themselves as disciples of the Lord, of Yeshua, etc. They never distinguish themselves from the rest of Judaism. It's sort of like, we're part of them, we just follow this other guy that they don't. When we get to chapter 15 of Acts, we're going to see that it's, it becomes very clear that's what's going on, because there's other issues that come up from 10 on that 
if they weren't part of Judaism, wouldn't be a problem. Anyway, uh, chapter 6 of Acts. Anybody, I, I cut it off on the screen here if you got your outline there. Uh, chapter 6 through 8.1. This is essentially where we, be, I, we learn the identity of the recipients. They're Hebrews. Those who are Hebrew speaking versus Greek speaking. Chapter 6, verse 7. What does it say there? And then the word of God spread, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. We get to chapter 15 of Acts, we're going to, or chapter 21. We're going to discover myriads upon myriads. In fact, over over 20,000. So it's, I mean, this this is growing really fast, really quick here. Uh, multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. How are the Sadducees going to feel about having priests, people that don't believe in the resurrection of the dead, turning, changing sides, joining a sect of Judaism, as it were, that believes in the resurrection of the dead, number one, also believes in this Messiah that we killed, by the way. Uh, Oh, man, this is like... And there's still priests. And what am I going to say? I'm sorry, you can't be a priest anymore. And there's still priests. It doesn't say... Former priests, yeah, no, yeah. of course not. Well, you know, can you imagine what it was like to be a to be a Kohen who came to faith in Yeshua and suddenly dawned on never believing in the resurrection of the dead, and suddenly having dawned on you the relationship between what you're doing and Olam Haba, the world to come, and the sacrifice of Yeshua. It's like it had to have been a powerful experience for them. Suddenly, it's like wow. This is what I've been doing all my life. It was pointing to something. That's powerful. What was it that these priests were obedient to? Says the 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 priests were becoming obedient to the faith. To the faith. What thing? Exactly. And, and, And what is there to be obedient to? Other than. You should. Obey him. And Hear his voice. Back to the, back to the what are the false charges offered against uh, Stephen? First of all, verse 37, Stephen, uh, chapter 6, verse seven, uh, 7, verse 37, Stephen uses the same thing Peter did earlier. This is that Moses who said to the children of Israel, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren, him you shall hear. Okay, Stephen's drawing from this too. But what was Stephen accused of? The end of chapter six. Speaking against Moses and the law. Excellent. Okay. Here is exactly what he said. We have heard him, verse fourteen, we have heard him, Stephen, say that this Yeshua of Nazareth will destroy this place, the temple, and change the custom which Moses delivered to us. And all who sat in the council looking steadfastly at him saw his face the face of an angel. Well, first of all, skip up to verse 11. Then they secretly induced men to say, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses. And they stirred up the elders. Verse 13. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against his holy place and the Torah. Was the accusation against Stephen correct? Not a chance. Not a chance. And what did did they accuse him of saying? That Yeshua would abolish this place, the temple, and the customs, or the Torah of Moses. They accused him of saying what the church says today. They're accusing him of what Matthew Henry says, the book of Acts, 
or excuse me, the book of Hebrews is doing. Right? Keep that in mind as we move on. We saw that. It's interesting in, in Stephen's response that he doesn't. Well, for one thing, it's interesting he doesn't defend himself blatantly. How does he? How does he defend himself? In, the, in his defense, he doesn't try to explain that position. Oh, you don't understand. That Torah thing is outdated. Who is Stephen? Let's figure out what this is. Instead, he actually uses Moses as his primary example. Not just a primary example, but if you read the parallels, he seems to be connecting. He's actually drawing parallels between Moses and Yeshua. That's right. And he's trying to argue that the same way that the people rejected Moses, you're rejecting Yeshua. And what was his thing about the temple? Did he denigrate the temple and the tabernacle in his discussion? No, it's actually a primary, a primary thing in his discussion. When he says, and God does not dwell in houses made with human hands, is he bad-mouthing the temple? <laughs> Only if you've never read the Torah... Because if you've read the Torah, if you read in Exodus chapter 25, we know that the temple was and the tabernacle were never designed as a house for God, are they? No. He says, build me a sanctuary. Build this tabernacle. Build me a sanctuary that I may dwell the tokam among them, in them. The tabernacle is not a house for God to dwell in. It is a place where God can meet and dwell with people. A meeting place. A portal. Part of it too, I think, is that if you read the whole verse that he quotes, the verse 50 of that says, Has not my hand made all these things? Part of it is also emphasizing the point that you're not going to build a house for God as though he needed you exactly. to a home, like he's homeless unless you make one for him. Rather, on the contrary, he doesn't need it at all. As you see in Acts later, Paul uses the exact same reference to argue that God does not need that or worship by man's hands. Obviously, I'm not trying to argue that God shouldn't be worshipped. Correct. What does what what is what is Stephen's? Who is Stephen? Is Stephen a Hebrew speaker or a Greek speaker? He comes from the Greek synagogue, and yet what we read in chapter chapter seven through eight one, Stephen's defense. We read, do we read someone who is what we would think a Hellenist would approach the scriptures? It's astonishing, to, to Joshua's point, he does not defend himself. No. He actually goes on the offensive and says, he doesn't even say, wait a minute. He says, brothers, fathers, elders, you know, listen to me. Starts from the beginning, lays it all out, and says, these, these guys that rejected Moses, killed the prophets, that's you. You guys have been doing this all along, and, you did, and look, you did it again. Yeah. A, a complete offensive thing. Absolutely. And, and gives up completely on any opportunity to save himself. And the ultimate irony is the fact that he ends his argument. The last thing he says is he accuses them of the very thing they've accused him of. He yeah. says that you have received the law by the disposition of angels and have not kept it. Look at look go back to verse go back to verse six verse nine it says there arose among that uh, uh, from among the synagogue of the freedmen Cyrenes Alexandrians those from Cilicia and Asia disputing with Stephen these are Hellenists we have incorrectly seen oftentimes Hellenists to be non-observant that is not true in fact what we see is these Hellenists are zealous. Okay. Well, we Just because they're Greek-speaking doesn't make them non-observant. We looked at the map because we didn't know where all these places were. <laughs> and the biggest city in Cilicia 
Tarsus. That's right. Paul is accused of being a Hel- Paul is accused of being a Hellenist, which is why he begins a quote new religion. Right? No, absolutely not. The Hellenist Jews were observant. They were not. They're in, they're in Jerusalem for a reason. By the way, the synagogue of the freedman, Janet was curious, so looked it up, and actually I'll show you a picture. Actually, we have a picture of where it is. Uh, the, the freedman actually was most likely it was a synagogue right next to the temple. And built by a man that had been freed, uh, um, uh, uh, was it Pompey or Pompey? Yeah, so it was hundred years earlier, and basically it was done in memory of him. They've actually found a cornerstone with an inscription of his name, uh, who who built it, and it was mostly for pilgrims that came to Jerusalem for them to a place for them to pray and for them to uh, also to uh, study and stay, stay or whatever else okay look at, look at let's look a little bit at at, uh, at this thing that Stephen said in Acts 7 53 where he brings this is what Joshua talked about his final accusation the one that cut them to the heart it says in verse 40, 54 he says you Verse 52, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute and they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one of whom you have now become the betrayers and murderers? You have received the law, the Torah, by the direction of angels and have not kept it. What does he accuse them of? They're Torah breakers. They killed the prince of life and they don't keep Moses. Right? You don't keep this is what they accuse him of. This is like Paul, like like Josh was saying. They accuse him of this. He turns around and goes, "You're the ones that are, you're the ones that are breaking the Torah." Well, but he uses this phrase by the direction of angels. It's an interesting phrase because Paul uses it as well, and I think it's uh, uh, actually it's in, in uh, Galatians three nineteen. Go to Galatians three nineteen real quick. I'm skipping ahead here, but I'm trying to hurry. What purpose then does the law serve, the Torah served? It was added because of transgressions, till the seed should come to those who a promise was made. And it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. The mediator is speaking of Moses. So it's appointed, and actually the word there is the same root word as this one he uses over in Acts 7.53, law by the direction of angels. This Torah by the direction of angels. How did Moses get the Torah? Did angels hand it to him? Did angels receive? Did an angel say? How many times in the how many how many times in the Torah does it say how the transmission of the Torah is given? And the Lord spoke unto Moses, saying, "Speak also to the children of Israel, saying." I mean, over and over and over and over again, God spoke. Moses repeated. God spoke. Moses repeated. God spoke. Moses wrote it down. So what's this by the direction of angels? Where'd that come from? New York is standard as ordained by ordained by angels. That's right. Go to Acts seven uh, seven thirty seven through thirty nine. What you need to understand is our writer in the book of Hebrews is going to make this exact same correlation between the Torah and angels, which is what the whole first two chapters are all about. 7.37 Acts 7.37 This is that Moses who said the children is the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like him from among your brethren him he shall you hear this is he who was in the congregation of the wilderness with the angel 
big A in my Bible, with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai, and with our fathers, the one who received the living oracles to give to us, whom our fathers would not obey but rejected. Who did they obey? Who did they not obey? The angel. They didn't obey. By the way, if you go to chapter 34 of, of Exodus, that's exactly what he says. I will send my angel before you. You will obey him. Wow, that sounds a lot like it. Deuteronomy 13, or Deuteronomy 18, right? Saying to Aaron, make us God, and basically they want to go back to Egypt. Let's keep it down to verse uh, 42. Then God turned and gave them up to the worship of the host of heaven. It is written in the, in the prophets, did, not, uh, did you not offer... Actually, that's too far. Stop. So, there's this link. This link is between the prophet like Moses and angel. Okay? Psalm 68 17. Actually, we do get a glimpse of this. We, we know that God spoke to Moses. But angels attended. Psalm 68 17 tells us angels attended at the giving of the Torah. So the chariots of God are 20,000, even thousands of thousands. The Lord is among them, as in Sinai in the holy place. When God descended on the mountain in, in Exodus chapter 19, it was covered with a cloud. When God descended on the mountain, who. Who attended to him? It says myriads and myriads of angels. Deuteronomy, 30, uh, Deuteronomy 33, 2. It says, Then the Lord came from Sinai and dawned on them from Seir and shone forth from Mount Paran. And he came with ten thousands of saints. From his right hand came a fiery law for them. And the 10,000 saints just means holy ones. Attended by angels. Galatians 3.19, we read that. Same thing. Who do you expect that? The king were going to come and speak to him. His royal court. Yeah, he should have been walking by himself. Exactly. What we discover is Sinai is something amazing in that God brings his royal court to earth. Uh, Angelos or Angelos or Los Angeles <laughs> Messengers is all that it means both in the Greek and the Hebrew is messenger it's no different it's a messenger is can be an angel can just be an angelic being or an angel either one uh, this is not to say that it's just messengers but it's interesting because that's exactly the way that Hebrews chapter 1 starts out. Go to chapter 1 of Hebrews. Go in your appendix that we're reading from the same text we're studying from. In your appendix, it's on page I. Uh, page 61, it would be, in your appendix. Hebrews 1.1 1, 1. God, having in the past spoken to the fathers through the prophets and many times and in various ways, verse 2, has in the end of these days spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made, also he made the worlds. So, speaking through prophets. Are prophets messengers? Malachi, your favorite Italian prophet. My messenger. Or it could be my angel. I mean, you decide. But it's my messenger. Malachi is, is my messenger. That's what it means. So, is, was Malachi a prophet? Absolutely. So, prophets were his messengers. So, we see this correlation being made. This, he starts off Hebrews by making this thing about God in times past spoke through various ways, through messengers. 
we're going to see that he's speaking directly about angels in a moment as well. Angelic beings. Uh, Verses 1 through 7. Oops, I lost my place off. Chapter 1 of Hebrews 1 through 7. says... Uh, verse, uh, verse 3 His son is the radiance of his glory the, image, the very image of his substance Upholding all things by the word of his power When he had by himself made purification for our sins Sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high Having become so much better than the angels As he inherited a more excellent name than they Well it still might be just messengers But listen To which of his angels they say You are my son Today I have become your father Did he say that to any of his, me- of his messengers? Maybe David Actually because he's quoting from that and again, I will be to him a father, and you will be to me, him my son. Again, when he brings in the firstborn into the world, uh, he says, Let all the angels of God worship him. We're going to discover that's actually a quote from Deuteronomy in the Septuagint. So that, that actually speaking of, well, that's speaking of angelic beings. The verse 7, of, a, of the angels, he says, who makes his angels winds and his servants flames of fire. Well, that's probably talking about angelic beings and not just prophets or messengers. Okay? He's got to go from prophets and messengers to angels who are messengers. What are they messengers of? He's drawing this, he's drawing this exact correlation that Stephen was drawing and that Paul was drawing in Galatians chapter 3. He's connecting what it is that angels attended to and what it is that Moses and the people received. Hebrews 1-2 A compare, not a contrast. God has spoken in the past through messengers and we're going to see also by attending angels. In these times he has spoken through his son. Is the message a different message? No. It's not a different message. It's a weightier message. It's the same message. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 9 of Hebrews. It's the same message. And the reason we know it's the same message, and the reason we know why those like Matthew Henry are wrong in their estimation of this book is, if you receive this book from somebody, first of all, written in Greek, and you're a Hebrew, if you started off by saying, and by the way, that just throw all that temple Torah, all that nonsense, just throw it away. Good grief, what were you thinking? And what would they have done? It was written in Greek, and it said that? Yeah. Toss it. it. Why? Because that's a false... That's the same thing they said about Stephen. <laughs> this is a false accusation. How dare... Whoever said this to you, how dare you say this to us? If you were a Berean, and all you had was... Maybe the Septuagint, but the Tanakh. You had the Old Testament. And someone came and said, by the way, just throw that stuff away. Man, what are you thinking? What would you be thinking? You'd be saying, sorry, buddy. I'm going by this, not by what you said. I don't care if Hebrews someday will be considered Scripture. I'm not going to consider it Scripture if it goes against what Scripture says. Right? The fact is, what did the first century do? They accepted Hebrews as Scripture. That's a powerful message to us that we may have misread it because they certainly would not have abandoned it. Look at chapter chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, we ought to pay greater attention to the things that, we were, that were heard. Who's speaking now? Who, what are you hearing? What are you hearing? In these last days, it's spoken to us through His Son, Messiah. Greater attention to the things we heard, lest perhaps we drift away. For if the words spoken through angels... Through, 
proved steadfast. What's the word spoken through angels? This is where we're going. It's the Torah. It's the whole system that they're engaging in. If the word spoken through angels proves steadfast and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation which at the first being spoken through the Lord was confirmed to us? Remember what he said in Deuteronomy 13 and in chapter 18 of Deuteronomy that both Peter and Stephen used? This one, this prophet, like unto Moses, him you shall hear. God also testified with them, both by signs and wonders, by various works and powers, by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. For he didn't subject the world to come, of which we speak to angels. But one has somewhat, somewhere testified, saying, What is man that you are that you think of him, or the son of man that you care for him? Do you, do you think he doesn't know where the reference you know, where, do, where is that? I can't remember where that is. The, uh, it just occurred to me that uh, when... Uh, when we see the Torah, how they're supposed to tell a false covenant in 18 and Yeah. He says there'll be, they may have miracles. Yeah. Check the miracles first, but the message has to line up. Excellent. And look at this. He does exactly the same thing. Yeah. What's said, God also testified with them by signs and wonders. Secondary. Secondary. But it's there. It's the message first. But it's there. He, he, he basically, this is exactly what he's doing. He's making this connection to a prophet like unto Moses. That's exactly what he's doing. Just like Peter and, and, and Stephen did. You made him a little lower than angels. You crowned him with glory and honor. You have put all things to subject under his feet. For in that he subjected all things to him. He left nothing that is not subjected to him. But now we don't see all things subjected to him yet. But we see him who is made a little lower than the angels, Yeshua, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that by the grace of God he should taste death for, ev- taste death for everyone. This main point is it's, it is being done is, is like we've been talking about kalvakomer light to heavy. It's a it's a place to stand. For it to be a place to stand, the place you're standing on has to be firm. Right? You can't erase something and then say, by the way, like I just erased that. Don't erase what comes that follows. This very thing that we've talked about. This dispensationalism has a tendency to say, by the way, it used to be that way, but it's not that way anymore. But from now on, it's never going to change. Well, wait a minute. That's what they said before. <laughs> forever is forever. Now you say it's changed. So what makes you think then that Mormons can't come along and change it too? So your forever is... So your forever is more important than my forever. You know, what, which is it? Yeah. yeah it's like, what, you know, who is it that finally gets to say, okay, no more adding? Especially when it starts in Deuteronomy chapter 4 and says no more adding. It's why we constantly see in the apostolic scriptures quoting from the Hebrew scriptures. And the reason why is because they're saying, they're making the point, I'm not adding anything. I'm only clarifying. If you you read anything new, you need to have the hair on the back of your neck stand up. A place to stand. Archimedes said, give me a place to stand and a lever long enough and I will move the world. The lever of Hebrews 2, 2 through 3 is in fact the Torah, the law. The discussion of angels in chapter 1 and 2 all the way up to this point is a talk about the law, the Torah. He's saying if the Torah could be abolished, then guess what? The word of Yeshua is worthless. But because the Torah can't be. Because it stands. It's steadfast. How much more then should you listen to Yeshua? Not that he overturns it, 
but that his word is the more weighty, even, even far more weighty. Why? We saw in chapter 12 of, 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 of uh, Hebrews last uh, two weeks ago, we saw it chapter 12. Why is it? It's the same voice. It's the same voice speaking from Mount Zion and speaking from Mount Sinai. It's the same voice. Chapter 6 of Acts and chapter 7 of Acts. Would the Hebrews who received this epistle listen to a false accusation against Stephen? No. So why would they listen to this book if it were saying the same thing? They wouldn't. See why, you see why this context is important? Would they have continued to read this epistle if the argument being made was the same one against Stephen? No, they would not have. The light to heavy, the Calvachomer, would have been a powerful argument for them because they were revering the Torah. Because they were obedient. Listen, here's the great thing about this picture. Who are these men that could, Jan and I talked about this last night, who are these men that could stand in Solomon's portico and with absolute courage stand up and say, you killed the Prince of Glory? Who were these men that could say this? They were men that at Shacharit were there. At Mincha, they were there. At Maari, they were there. And they were there first with three, first with 150, then with 3,000, then with 8,000. They're showing up in the temple to do what? To pray, to worship. Who are the pious ones of Jerusalem in this century, this right now? The men who followed Yeshua, the men and women who followed Yeshua, they're the pious ones. Guess what? They earned the right to stand up and say, you better listen. Why? Because they're the pious ones. These are not ones who are opposed to the very system. These are the ones that are saying, oh man, if there were ever some good Jews, it's these guys. You know, all of Jerusalem's looking at these people going, oh man, these are the, these are the ones that we, we, we want to pattern our life after. They're the ones who are worshiping God in spirit and in truth. These are the ones that are the faithful, right? And they're talking about this Yeshua. Maybe that's what makes the difference. This is the evidence of the observant Jew who doesn't just have the frame, the corners of his life marked out and identified, but inside has the king of glory living. It doesn't stand, this word does not stand in antithesis to Yeshua. It's the light. Yeshua is the heavy. The system, the temple system that this, that this book is going to use to make this com- comparison throughout, it's not standing in the antithesis, it's the light. Yeshua is the heavy. And that's what he's going to do all the way through. Which is the, which, see it here, understand it has a greater meaning in the person of Yeshua. Not antitheses, but comparing. And our literary and historical reference are what's helping us to discover this. Uh, the primary recipients of this epistle are defined by Acts. They were thoroughly immersed in the culture and religious practice that we talk about. These are, these are the pious ones. The way that the writer uses their background is not meant to discourage that. I mean, obviously. We get into this. We're going to find out. These are people that know a lot. And he's saying you need to move on to more meaty things. I mean, uh, he's left us in the dust. Um, but rather, the writer uses their knowledge and experience to make a point, and the point is one of encouragement. Press in. What you've got is great. There's more. Uh, Stephen, even though he was a Hellenist, a Greek speaker, understood the validity of what was spoken through Moses, and he used it. That's what he used as his major point to point to Yeshua, which is exactly what Yeshua said. We looked at that two weeks ago. He said, you read Moses, 
if you read Moses, you, you should see me. If you believe him, you would believe me because he wrote about me. Any final comments? Let's close in prayer. Our Father, we thank you for men like Stephen, like John, and like Peter. And what a great testimony they were in that day. Father, we ask that we might be men and women like that today. That we would have testimonies that are not only uh, about changed lives that we speak of with our lips, but Father, that we reflect in our daily activities. We thank you for for their piety, for their faithfulness. And Lord, that when they are offensive, that it was only that Yeshua being spoken was offensive because their deeds and their actions were ones that would bring favor. Father, we thank you for all the things that you show us in your word. We pray in Yeshua's name. Amen. Say our blessing after uh, the Torah. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech ha'olam Asher natan lanu Torah temet Vechai olam natah betokhenu Baruch atah Adonai Noten ha'torah Amen Blessed art thou Adonai our God King of the universe who gave us Who gave us the Torah of truth And planted eternal life in our midst Blessed art thou Adonai giver of the Torah